Hi, my name's Heather, and we are talking about practices and habits that spark a deeper love. Today, we are joined by Michael O'Brien. I was introduced to Michael through Megan, who works as Missio's ministry director, because Michael is her dad. She affectionately says that she is comforted because she has a father who loves the best that he can with all that he can, despite circumstances that have taught him the opposite. Her favourite things to do with her dad is to talk about the world, his work, watch movies and debate each other on different topics, which she says always ends in a hug. Michael O'Brien earned a government theology degree from the University of Notre Dame. He attended law school at the University of Utah and he's a Catholic writer and lawyer who lives here in Salt Lake City. In his early adolescence, he found an unlikely family in the company of monks at the Holy Trinity Abbey in the mountains of Huntsville, Utah. He was struggling with his parents' recent divorce, and that community of monks helped him to develop the practices of stability and rootedness in a time of instability in his life. He'll be joining us today to talk about how he still applies these practices in his everyday life. So um, today we're here with Michael, and Michael is going to be um, talking to us about the practice of stability and rootedness. And Michael is Megan O'Brien's dad, and it was delightful to go with Megan um, to your office and hear you read from your book that kind of explained about um, having such connection with the Huntsville Monastery or Abbey. Um, and so as I was reading through your book, the practice of rootedness and stability really stood out because you encountered the this monastic community in a moment of your life that was really destabilizing um, after your parents' divorce. So just wanted to ask you a little bit about that moment of destabilizing and how the Abbey potentially brought that sense of stability and rootedness to you. Yes, no, great question. And thank you for inviting me to join you. Um, <clears throat> and uh, thank you again for your community's uh, graciousness and kindness towards our lovely daughter, Megan. Uh, we appreciate it. Uh, you know, probably the antithesis of stability and rootedness is divorce, right? Uh, you know how they make those top 10 lists of the 10 things that stress you out most in life. And, yeah. you know, certainly a change in a relationship like that is is very uprooting and very destabilizing, as you said, <clears throat> and uh, ever so much more so for an, uh, a 10 or 11 year old kid, which which I was when my parents got divorced in the early 1970s. So it was a very difficult time. I was the youngest in the family. Uh, my closest sibling was six years older than me, <clears throat> and my other siblings were all teenagers. You know, teenagers don't want to hang around their little brother. So uh, I, I was kind of alone in this uh, uh, storm of divorce, wondering what came next. And I, 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 I was saved in, in, uh, in, in part by um, the uh, stabilizing actions of a number of people, uh, one of whom was my mother, of course. Uh, my father was basically out of the picture <clears throat> after the divorce. Uh, and my mother, despite her own uh, turmoil and struggle, uh, you know, uh, stepped up and became a rock for all of us. And one of the things that she did, <clears throat> other than, you know, getting a job and uh, taking care of the family financially, as well as as, as a mother and, and a homemaker, 
was one day she took us on a ride up to the Ogden Valley, which was uh, near our home. We lived in Clearfield at the time. And uh, mom came from a generation of, of folks who used rides as recreation. You know, gas was 30 cents a gallon. And uh, so she said, let's go for a ride. And we did. We drove through the Ogden Valley. We saw a sign that said monastery pointing, you know, this uh, certain direction. And like a good Catholic family, we followed the arrows and ended up at Abbey of the Holy Trinity. Uh, the bookstore was open. We walked in and mother was looking for a book. Uh, and so she went up to one of the monks who was tending to the bookstore and said, uh, uh, let me tell you what I'm looking for. And he said, I know what you're looking for, peace. Uh, and uh, so, you know, to steal a line from Casablanca, it was the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Um, and that became the other source of stability in my life. These monks who actually take a vow of stability as part of the five vows they take um, became sort of this unexpected and surprising source of stability for a, a you know, a divorced woman and her 11-year-old uh, son. I love the, the picture of both of those. Oh, like you said, you named a number of stabilizing forces and a major one being your mother and then this community. And then I wonder if it might actually be possible for me to read because the, the vow of stability that they take is so beautiful. Um, and I, when you even write about this in your book, um, yeah, there's just something about this vow, by our vow of stability, we promise to commit ourselves for life to one community of brothers or sisters with whom we will work out our salvation, faith, hope, and love, resisting all temptation to escape the truth about ourselves by restless movement from one place to the next. We gradually entrust ourselves to God's mercy experienced in the company of brothers or sisters who know us and accept us as we are. I think that statement, resisting all temptation to escape the truth about ourselves by restless movement from one place to the next. Yes, wow. I mean, stability, stability isn't just a physical concept, is it? No. You know, in terms of staying one in one place geographically, it, 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 it's a emotional concept. It's a spiritual concept of, of uh, sticking with it, if you will. Um, on the search, you know, rather than dodging the harsh truths we all have about ourselves, about our shortcomings, our sins, our failures. Um, you know, a, a stability for the monks is a matter of confronting them um, and letting the monastic life sort of uh, sand the rough edges off of uh, your persona, if you will. Uh, of course, you know, as an 11 year old kid, I was clueless about all that. But, you know, just being there um, with, uh, uh, with them and, and with what I like to refer to as a stability of expectation, which is knowing that I could go there, they would be there, they'd care about me, they'd be interested in me, they'd let me work with them, they'd feed me, right, their delicious wheat bread and honey, um, created a, a, an expectation in, in, uh, in, in my life that, uh, you know, I, I knew it was an island of peace and stability for me to go to when I needed and wanted refuge. And of course, I didn't understand it in those exact terms as a little kid, but as I've reflected on it over the years, I've come to realize that that's exactly what it provided for me. Uh, uh, men taking a vow of stability, reaching out and trying to provide stability to a boy whose family and life was in turmoil. When you talk about like both the stability of a physical presence, like the Abbey itself and the different things you got up to, on that property, but then thinking of it too as the stability of expectation. 
maybe you could talk a little bit about what that experience kind of produced inside you like those the kind of expectation of both a physical place that felt rooted and stable and then this expectation of being welcomed or seen or known or uh, what, what was the fruit of that in your own kind of life or soul or yes uh so a lot of a lot of fruit um <clears throat> you know at the time uh you know, when your life is thrown into turmoil by a divorce, uh, as a kid, I think what you need first and foremost is a notion that um, uh, there's going to be some routine, there's going to be some uh, future, there's going to be some somebody you can, you know, in the words of the old song, lean on me, right? Um, and, uh, you know, with a, with a father gone uh, and a mother doing her best, but struggling with all of these jobs put upon her that she didn't expect, uh, you know, I, I needed someone to see me. I needed someone to care about me, uh, to uh, to indicate that I was welcome to be with them and to learn from them and and talk with them. And you know, oddly enough, in my life, it was monks. Maybe I was a surrogate son to them. Uh, you know, I think you could read the book and conclude that they were surrogate fathers for me. But they provided that that. Uh, 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 person in my life who, you know, said, I care about you. Uh, what you say matters. What you do matters. I want to help you. I, I'll answer your questions. Uh, and, and so that had the effect of sort of, um, you know, evening out the rocking boat of my life. Um, but years later, you know, growing up without a father, I didn't know how to be a father. So what did I do is I looked back to that example I had of how others had provided stability for me to try to be a father to my own children. And the most important concept I took from that, you know, along the, the, the notion of these, the stability of expectations concept we've talked about is, is being there, right? I, I realized that first and foremost, if I'm going to be a father, I need to be there for my kids. I need to go to their events. I need to participate in their lives. I need to hang out with them. If they need to talk to me, I need to listen. You know, they may come to me in the middle of a, a work project and it's the most inconvenient time in the world, but they have to talk to me about something. So I, I, I should be there for them. So, you know, the notion that, that uh, uh, I could create stability in, in the same manner in which it was created for me became part of the core of, of how I uh, fathered my children. Uh, so, it, you know, what happened 45, 50 years ago, not only uh, stabilized me, but you know the the, the proverbial uh, pebble in the pond that ripples out. Um, you know, growing up without a father, it sort of showed me how I could be a stable father for my own children, or a stable friend for others, or a sta stable husband for my for my wife. It's really beautiful in some ways that a moment for you that was so disruptive um, became this space where you learned the actual thing that was disrupted. Yes, yes. Uh, and to put it another way, somebody uh, during another uh, podcast, somebody said to me, you know, in a way, aren't you glad this happened to you? <laughs> and I said, well, you know, I, I, I sort of uh, bemoaned the fact that I my, my family broke up and that I was, you know, uh, thrust into that. And I, I'd see my friends with two parents. And I think, why me? Um, so, you know, no, I didn't at the time. Uh, I wasn't glad it had happened to me. Mm -hmm. 
but I, but I think it turned me into the person I am because uh, I, I had people in my life who helped me um, uh, confront it and deal with it. Uh, and so in a way, I guess the answer is yes, I am glad it happened to me because I think I would be a much different person today uh, without the, those sort of formative experiences. It's, I mean, I think about the, the stability and the longevity, like you, I, in reading through some of your books, there's like Brother Bond, one of the brothers, when you're going up to college, he writes a note to your mum, and then he also writes a note to you on graduation. And so this presence of the brothers as a 10 year old, but then also it makes a joke about what kind of drink he wants to get behind the bar. I mean, yes. as a lawyer, and I just think <laughs> not only was there a stabilizing presence in that moment, but this is this you've been in this community now for the long haul. Like this is a long term expectation. The expectations weren't just set for like a month or two. Or I mean, and to me, I think the the ability of the monks themselves to understand stability by taking a vow like that meant that when they encountered you and it just meant that they're kind of in it for the, the long haul or what would you say about that no you're absolutely right and, and very perceptive to see that in the book too um you know I, i'm i'm still friends with them today uh <laughs> i i talked with one just last weekend uh there's only five of them left of course but uh you know it, it, you know in the book i write about how you know, Brother Felix's words to us about, I, I know what you're looking for, the same as the rest of us, peace. You know, I said those those weren't profound words, you know, they and they didn't do anything other than change our lives uh, because it, they did. That The monks were always there for me, sometimes more than other times, right? Um, when we were going up there frequently for about a 12-year period until I graduated from college, uh, uh, I would see them two or three times a week. When I was in college, they would write letters to me. Um, when I graduated from college, I went to visit one who encouraged me to go to the Newman Center, uh, which is a Catholic student center at the University of Utah when I was in law school. He said, you have to go there, you have to go there. And so like a good Irish Catholic boy, I did. And that's where I met my wife, Vicki. Um, so I had a monk matchmaker. And then we were there for their 50th uh, anniversary and my kids started to meet them. And then of course, you know, there's this period of life when you have three small children and you need a, a spreadsheet to keep track of your schedule. And we didn't get up there very often, but um, uh, as our kids grew um, and became young adults, I reintroduced them to the monastery and they've each met, met the surviving monks and have been up there to understand the peace of the place. and. You know the monks will call me and say how are you uh I'll, I'll call them they like trappist beer um and during the pandemic of course they were uh, concerned about going out so i got them trappist beer so that they could uh enjoy the 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 brew of their brothers from uh from belgium so it, it has turned into a long-term friendship that has not only uh helped form me um but helped uh uh, helped me to uh, uh, understand how I can give back to them uh, in their time of need um, and help me to better understand the concept of longevity and relationships, right? So many of our relationships are transactional, right? We inter interact with somebody for a moment or two and we almost uh, turn people into transactions. Well, the monks are anything but transactional. 
you know, they are in it for the long haul, as you said, both in terms of their own devotion to the monastery and the people that they care about. And they don't force themselves on you. But if you open yourselves up to, to their friendship, they're going to be there until they die. And there's, I think sometimes when we think about a sense of rootedness, maybe there's an impulse that that rootedness comes from a job or it comes from a house or it comes from, and maybe that impulse is there because there isn't that many long-term relationships. Like relationships and rootedness maybe aren't always the thing that come to people's lives because relationships tend to be the one, things that fracture quickly or like you said, they become transactional or um, there can be an enormous amount of pain that is attached to relationships. And yet it feels like in this moment what the monks and that their relationship too has offered you rootedness. Like it's a rooted relationship. Yes. Well, you know, what's the phrase buy-in, right? Mm -hmm. You know, when you join a monastery and you stay there your entire life, you buy into the life, you buy into the relationship. Uh, you, you promise to stay for good, for bad, for ugly. Um, and, you know, in the midst of divorce, which was the exact opposite of buy-in, you know, I, I saw an example of buy-in and it taught me buy-in. Um, and and I, I, I really, truly try to have uh, buy-in in my relationships with people. You know, if we're going to be friends, I don't want to just be friends for a few days or a few weeks or a few months. I want to be able to call you a friend years from now. You know, and that what does that require? Um, it requires nurturing, right? It requires work. It re requires uh, uh, dealing with conflict. It, it requires dealing with disagreement. Um, um, and I, I'm not perfect at it by any sense of the word, but you know, what, what they taught me was that the concept of buy-in, uh, in not just in terms of where you live and, and the work you do, but with the, with the people in your life, is critically important. It, it, it's again, it's that intangible rootedness, that intangible stability. Um, uh, you know, uh, if, if we can, you know, the, the monks became good friends with their neighbors, many of whom were Latter-day Saints, and they measured their friendship in terms of decades not in terms of, of days or months or years. And, uh, you know, we're, we're not always going to be privileged to be able to do that with everyone in our life. But if we can try to create that sort of rootedness and stability and buy-in in, in everything we do, I, I think we have the opportunity for a more peaceful life uh, and a more um, uh, a pleasant life and, and, and uh, a life where we're not constantly looking for the next best thing. I think if I could sit with that for a little, for a minute, the intangibility, the intangible practices and habits that lead to stability, to expectation, to rootedness, that just even sitting with ourselves long enough to know what those intangible things would be so that we can orient ourselves towards them. And like you said, things like nurture or work or conflict or disagreement or like letting those things be an invitation to rootedness and stability instead of them being an opportunity to just like run away or and not that we can't or we're not in control always of things or we, it's not that doing being out of a relationship is wrong necessarily it's just taking the time to attune to the intangible things that could cultivate stability and rootedness no you're right i mean you can't um you can't resolve every conflict right you can't 
preserve every relationship. And the, the history of the monastery is an example of that. There were many men who came there and, and stayed for a few days, a few months, a few years, and left. Um, uh, you know, so you know, you know, it, it, it's not the, the notion that you should consider that you've failed if 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 you've had conflict that has ended a relationship. But the whole point of what they taught me is is that you have to give it the old college try, right? You shouldn't merely walk away from a relationship because there's conflict. You you you, you should try to preserve it if you can. Um, you know, the uh, one of the retired abbots of the monastery, you know, to describe for people how difficult that life could be, told them, you know, imagine you're in a relationship with a spouse or a significant other, and you essentially have one person that you have to work on in terms of your relationship. Well, we're living here with 30 other people, uh, all of whom we have a, a community relationship with. And the business of succeeding in a monastery is about working on those relationships. And the mark of success is, is if you can establish relationships and disagree without being disagreeable and get past a disagreement and find a way to work together and find consensus and build consensus. Um, you know, you, you just read our headlines today and you think that, you know, so much of our political dialogue today thrives on division and tribalism and and ivory towers and us versus them well you know if you have that attitude you're not going to make it in a monastery and you're not going to make it in most relationships either right because relationships are about um uh, as a, another catholic priest told me not meeting each other 50 50 but meeting each other 100 100 you know going 100 percent towards the other person uh, and again, in the midst of divorce, where you know essentially our family was abandoned by our father, uh, I, I had this wonderful example laid out for me of of men who were trying to do the exact opposite and stick with something even when it was difficult. I love too that in the book that you also address that the community that or the Catholic tradition too has been struggling with um, the sexual abuse. Um, the level and the depth at which that abuse is happening in the Catholic Church and I do really deeply appreciate that that was part of your book and part of the things that you named and your own the kind of tension there because you experience a lot of safety in this community and stability and rootedness and yet you also honestly acknowledge how that has for many that isn't the experience that they've had in this right. particular space and you also talk about your own sexual abuse not um within the monastery or the monks but them actually being present to you and so i just wanted to give gratitude for your willing to step into the complexity of this telling the story that you have of this beautiful experience and yet also acknowledging um the grave woundedness that some people have i wonder if you'd be willing to just Talk about that tension for you. Oh, yes, certainly. And thank you for giving me the opportunity. Um, you know, much like, um, you know, the divorce uprooted my own life and created instability, you know, for a lot of, of good and faithful Catholics, the abuse scandal has done the same thing, either directly. I mean, imagine the uh, instability that would follow in your life if a priest who you cared about and trusted and admired suddenly use that relationship to abuse you sexually. It's a horrible abuse of trust. Uh, 
um, and it creates tremendous um, instability and uprootedness. Uh, you know, so in many ways, uh, you know, uh, many, many people have experienced that. Um, I experienced it in terms of my own relationship with the church because I was very angry that um, the church allowed uh, wolves among the sheep, if you will. Um, the, the bad shepherds let the, the, uh, the innocent lambs be devoured in many ways by uh, uh, a small number of predators, but nonetheless, uh, you know, one predator is one too many. So I, I wrestled with that, that anger um, and uh, considered uh, leaving the church. Uh, because it, it, it seemed to be the exact opposite of the church that I had known, uh, where people cared about you, where people uh, uh, returned your trust, and where they didn't abuse you uh, uh, or abuse your trust for their own personal gain. So I had to reconcile the, you know, the, the, the scandalized church that I was living in in the early 2000s with uh, this church that I loved. And as I, as I tell people, I had to go backwards in order to go forward. Uh, I had to go backwards into my memory and remember uh, what the church had meant to me, including at a time when I was sexually abused by a stranger. It wasn't anybody who was affiliated with the church. I was coming home after baseball practice and was in the wrong place at the wrong time. And in my case, it, it was uh, monks and priests and my mother who helped rescue me, mm -hmm. who told me it wasn't your fault, who told me we care about you you know, who would make sure I got to the bus stop safely, uh, you know, who understood when I would have a panic attack if I was uh, uh, in, in fear of being in a strange place. So it, it, it was people from, uh, from the church in many ways who uh, stood up for me and helped heal the abuse. So I had, to, I had to equate that with the fact that there were some people in the church who were predators and abusers. And sort of go back to the gospel reading, right? Of that there's a chaff in the wheat, right? We have to separate the wheat from the chaff in order to, um, to make bread. Uh, so I, I had to do that. I had to do some sorting and I had to uh, realize and remember uh, that uh, although there were some bad actors in the church, the vast majority of, of priests and nuns and, and uh, monks uh, actually care for people. Um, they try to help people who are trafficked. Uh, they work with alcoholics and drug addicts. They, they work with people who are economically unstable. They, they feed the hungry, right? They visit prisoners. Um, they do all the things that we talk about in the Beatitude. And there's far more, many, far more people who do that than people who commit abuse. So I was able to separate the wheat from the chaff. And although I'm uh, wary of the institutional church and a little less trusting, still an active Catholic today uh, because uh, I recognized that uh, as I worked through that equation, far more good comes from the church than does evil. Uh, I wish we could totally eradicate the evil, but we're a human institution um, and human institutions are bound to be uh, imperfect and to inflict that imperfection on others and cause wounding, as you put it. Uh, so that, that's how I sort of sorted it out myself. And the book is, uh, uh, is my form of spiritual therapy that I've now inflicted on poor people like you who were kind enough to read it. Well, I think it's, it's really telling to you that there's this other moment in your life that is really destabilizing in this community of people that have loved you through a different moment that was destabilizing, stabilize you. And then 
this larger institutional destabilizing moment you're having to to sort through and i think there's there's kind of words of wisdom for us in that that we're going to encounter a lot of things in our lives that would kind of want to uproot us or destabilize us um and so i would just maybe ask you that you've named many of them but just to maybe name them again what would be some of the habits and practices that you still hold on to or that you would encourage us to do um, as people who are going to in our lifetimes experience many different things that would destabilize or uproot us and um, what would you say are the kinds of things that we would cultivate to keep us connected to keep us whole to or to get us to wholeness and what would you sure. say to us well, you know, the monks, we've talked about the monk vow of stability, but they actually take five vows. Uh, and uh, I watched them take those vows and live those vows when I was a kid. Uh, again, I didn't realize what was happening, but I think what happened looking back is that is that watching them do that imprinted those promises on my own life. Now, I've had to translate them because I don't live in a monastery, right? I'm a father with three children, a married man. So I've had to translate the monk vows into to life in the world, if you will. Um, but as, as I've tried to do that, I, I realized that they in fact did create a pathway for me uh, to be, as I like to call it, to try to be a man of, of faith, hope, and love, uh, to be a man of, of, of stability, of rootedness. Um, so the first vow they take is obedience. And uh, obviously, uh, I'm not taking a vow, a promise to be obedient to an abbot or a leader of a monastery. But the word obedience that they, as they use it, uh, when you look at the roots of the word, uh, it means to listen. It means to listen. So for me, the Trappist, I think, taught me to, to realize the value in listening to other people and hearing them. So their vow of obedience for me means listen better. They take a vow of uh, poverty. Uh, and obviously, I don't live in poverty, um, and uh, uh, we, we have a nice home in Cottonwood Heights. And I, you know, I, I don't, uh, uh, I, I don't live uh, uh, the way the monks did. But because I don't take a vow of poverty, doesn't mean I can't be inspired by their vow and try to live a life more uh, of greater simplicity, a life of greater compassion, uh, which is the flip side of their vow of poverty because they, they denied themselves in order to give to others. So what can I do? I can be more simple in my existence and try to find ways to give and share with others as a result. The monks take a vow of celibacy. Well, with three kids, you know, ain't no surprise I'm not a celibate, right? Uh, so what does celibacy mean in a non-monk world? Well, for me, it means devotion, right? Devotion in my relationships. Uh, I can be devoted and what does devotion mean? It means not throwing the relationship away the first time it becomes difficult, right? It means um, uh, uh, for better or for worse, right? The marriage vows I took, you know, it means loving someone even when um, they're in a lousy mood um, and when they're having a tough time and, and, and they're, they're not, uh, um, you know, uh, the, the fun person that they can be at other times. Devotion, right? Stick to itness, buy-in. The monks take the vow of stability, as you mentioned, um, it means to live in a community. And for me, that means I need to uh, be part of other people's lives. 
right? I need to have a community. It can be a work. It can be a community of friendship. It can be a church community. It can be a book club. Uh, but, you know, we don't live our lives alone. Um, uh, and, and we live a better life if we don't live our lives alone. And that's the lesson that the monks teach us here in the outside world is to, to establish, nurture, and care for community. And then the final vow the monks take is called conversion of manners, which is they promise to, uh, to be open to learning about themselves and to change, right? To grow, right? To, to become a better person. Uh, and monasteries work. You know, you, monks are, are wonderful human beings because they commit to the life of a monastery and they let it transform them. So we have to be open, I think, as non-monks to the same concept, right? We can grow, we can change, we can become better people. We can accept um, uh, uh, criticism from our friends and our family when we're not doing something right and recognize that they're coming from a place of love and that we can do better. So for me, that vow means, you know, living your life to try to always become a better person and grow. So, you know, I, I didn't live the vows that the monks took. I didn't take the vows the monks took, but they, by spending a dozen years with them, they imprinted this concept on me that I think has, as I've looked back, has, has become five of the key principles in my life. Um, uh, and five of the principles that had helped me be a more rooted and a more stable person. Well, it's fascinating as I just listen to you and think about all of those that how you even interpret, like the idea of obedience, obedience being interpreted as listening better or simplicity, devotion, stability and community and to grow. And in my mind, as I think about you saying those, I'm like, oh, those kinds of practices create stability of expectation. Yes. Yes. I mean, if, you, if you're going to a person who who always tries to listen to you, yes. who's a part of your community, who who uh, is willing to grow, then you can have a stable expectation that whatever you have to talk to them about or deal with them on is something that you can you can do. You may not agree completely, but it's someone with whom you can have a relationship and interact and uh, uh, someone who, who has their roots in you and within whom you can put your own roots so that you're part of this forest that we all live in, right? This community uh, where we're all inter interdependent upon each other. That's such a beautiful I probably used way too many metaphors there. Uh, no, I love, you. I really <laughs> love that metaphor of like being rooted in someone else and then being rooted in you, especially living here in Utah where you think about the, the trees, the, the under, I'm forgetting the name of the trees, but they kind of wave at you. The aspen yes. and how yeah, they're, the yeah, they're literally connected to each other in their root system. And so to think of us as people being connected to us or rooted to one another is, is really, it should become, or not should become, or it is like a stabilizing thought that there are people that can do that for us. Well, you know, I mean, it's really how we are. And I think a lot of our unhappiness comes from when we're cutting away our roots and we're cutting ourselves away from other people. And, um, you know, we, we weren't, you know, we weren't meant to live our lives alone. Even the monks, you know, it's a solitary life in many ways. It's a contemplative life. It's a life away from the world. But as you've heard and read, it's rooted in other people. It's rooted in, in God. 
It's rooted in God, God incarnate, and God is incarnated in other people. So I find other people in God, or I find God in other people. Um, so, you know, I, I, I think so much of our unhappiness comes from when we're um, uh, divorcing ourselves, if you will, from all of that, rather than um, recognizing that's uh, our habitat and uh, uh, trying to grow within that habitat. Well, I really appreciate having this conversation with you. I do as well. Thank you. And thank you for everything you do to uh, uh, create rootedness and stability. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, to be a pastor is a very difficult job. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, uh, few have the skills to uh, accomplish it um, in a meaningful way. Um, and so good for you for taking on that difficult role and much love and many good wishes for uh, success in it. Thank you. Any last things that come to mind before we um, let go? Or if there's anything you want to say about your book or? Well, no, again, thank you for the opportunity to uh, talk about it. You know, I, when I wrote it, I, I wanted my friends, the monks to be remembered because they're too modest to tell their own story. Uh, it also obviously reflects my own uh, uh, search, my own uh, uh, spiritual therapy, as I put it. But as I've talked with more people who, who have graciously told me they've been touched by the book, I've realized that, um, you know, there's a universal message within it um, that you don't have to be a monk or nun or a Catholic or even a religious person to understand. Uh, and, you know, that, that message is, is love. Right. That, that's that's why I am affiliated with the religion, because I believe that love is at the heart of that message. And love is a concept that transcends ideology, race, gender, uh, geography. Um, and, uh, you know, if, if more of us uh, follow the message of love, the world's going to be a better place. Uh, so I'm I'm really grateful that uh, people uh, literally from all across the country are are seeing that wonderful example of love that came to us from uh, uh, a back rural corner of, of Utah, uh, Huntsville, in a, a little Trappist monastery. What a gift. What an absolute gift. Yes. Well, thank you. Thank you. I hope this conversation sparks an imagination for the ways you can or do practice rootedness and stability in your everyday life. If you want to pick up Michael's book, reflecting more on his experience with the monks, you can find it at the King's English Bookshop, kingsenglish.com. Next week, we'll be joined by Daniel Wisdom. He spent the last seven months in the program at the Mission, downtown Salt Lake City. The Mission is a place that supports people who are houseless and provides a recovery program. Daniel says it's a place full of people and he's going to share insights about the practices and habits he's learned being in community. I hope you'll join us.